On the streets of Bucha, corpses in civilian clothes, shot at close range, their hands bound. Every day brings news of more horrors in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials said they also believe hundreds more people have been buried in mass graves. For most of the world, the brutality is deeply shocking. But many of the horrors of this conflict are just not reaching the people of Russia. On Russian state media, though, wow, it's a totally different picture. It's like a humanitarian effort down there. That's part of a deliberate effort by the Russian government to control what their people see and hear about the war. The terrible reality the rest of the world sees, shelling of civilians, suffering, death and destruction, never gets aired on Russian state TV. It's part of a strategy to simply declare to the rest of the world that what they're seeing and hearing isn't really happening. Russia has strongly denied the allegations, saying Ukraine's special forces staged the killings. Russia's ambassador to the UN describes it this way. We have this information war, which is raging much, much, on a, on a much greater scale than, the, than, the battle, than on the battlefield. And I will not be surprised at anything, because who wins the, the information war? The one wins the war. Do you, do you really truly believe this? Do you truly believe what you're saying? A disinformation war where the realities of the conflict are distorted, sometimes entirely reinvented, with both sides vying to portray the war the way they want it to be seen. In Russia, reporters who stray from the official portrayal of fighting in Ukraine face up to 15 years in jail for putting out what the government calls fake news. Of course, Western journalists are embedded with the Ukrainian side and present their version of the truth without much scrutiny. When I think about the existence of a parallel truth, I can't help but think of how America is grappling with its own contortions of reality. According to the latest Reuters-Ipsos poll, 60% of Republicans believe the election was stolen from Donald Trump. The truth is that we all now live in a world that's become increasingly unmoored from objective fact, if there is such a thing. Lies told so often, with such extraordinary efforts being expended by those in power to reinvent the way people see the world, that it's sometimes difficult to know which reality we're really living in. I'm Peter Charlie. In this episode of Al Jazeera Investigates, I'm looking into the truth illusion. How can we ever believe that what we're being told by governments, scientists, the media and others is really true? Or whether what we're hearing and seeing has been purposely constructed to deceive us? I'm standing in a crowd of thousands of people just down the road from the US Capitol in Washington, DC. Those around me are furious, convinced that Donald Trump won the 2020 presidential election by a landslide. Today we stand in support of our true president, President Trump. 
A man carrying a sign saying, God and guns, gestures for me to take off my face mask. I'm one of the few people here wearing one. When I decline, he spits at my feet and walks away. A man carrying an American flag steps towards me. He looks agitated. Everybody in this country knows Donald Trump won this election. Everyone around the world knows he won this election. Those who did win the election call that the big lie. But try using that term in this crowd. It's disgusting what the Democratic Party allowed. They take Donald Trump out of, out of the presidency, this whole nation's going to flip on the streets. So where do you go for the truth? To get the... the truth is here. Look at this country. The truth is here in a country profoundly divided. In a seething crowd on Washington's windswept streets, with the party faithful aggrieved and spoiling for revenge. If you participated in voter fraud, I'm saying I'm thinking a minimum of five years in prison. And if you were a person who was kind of at the top, who, for instance, maybe ran a voting machine company or was directly involved in switching millions of votes, I, I'm sorry, but I would not eliminate execution as an appropriate punishment. Why do Americans fail to agree on what is true? And how did America get there? Millions are so consumed by rage that a grievance-ridden speech by Donald Trump. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen. And a call to arms by his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Let's have trial by combat. lead hordes to smash their way into the Congress building on January 6, 2021, calling for the Vice President and the Speaker of the House to be dragged from the building and put to death. If you asked Americans whether they had faith in the government to do the right thing, all or most of the time. Poll Americans in the mid-1960s, 77% of them say, yes, I've got faith in the government. That's Ethan Suckerman, an American media scholar. We go through Vietnam. We go through Nixon. We go through terrible economic turmoil. By the time we hit the 1980s and Reagan, we're down to about 25% of Americans who say they trust the government. Zuckerman says the implosion of faith in the government was driven by lie after lie being told to a once trusting American public. By the time we get to Obama and then Trump, we're under 15%. As if to emphasize the point, one member of Congress gave this assessment of what actually went on at Capitol Hill on January 6. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. His name is Andrew Clyde, a Republican from the 9th District of Georgia. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. Is it even remotely possible that Andrew Clyde believes what he just said? 
that the violent invasion of the Capitol building, which left five people dead, was like a normal tourist visit? So many of the people I put my life at risk to defend are downplaying or outright denying what happened. Michael Fanone was one of the policemen who defended the Capitol building and those inside it as the January 6 attack took place. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room. He suffered a heart attack after being savagely beaten and tased by the mob that day. Too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. So who are we to believe? A member of the US Congress who's sworn an oath to uphold the US Constitution? Or the cop who nearly died trying to make sure that the congressman and his colleagues stayed safe? This is a battle an argument, a dispute, not about the nature of truth. It's an argument about what the truth actually is. Kasim Kassam is a professor of philosophy from Warwick University in the UK. Though philosophers have been wrestling with how best to define truth since, well, since philosophers started philosophizing, Kasim Kassam says he believes the definition is simple. Well, truth is simply correspondence to the facts. Um, so, uh, uh, supposing you have w one proposition or one sentence, Trump won the election by a landslide, and then you have another sentence, another proposition, another statement, Trump lost the election by a landslide. Uh, now, if the fact is that Trump lost the election by a landslide, then the statement that's true is the statement that he lost because it corresponds to that fact. And it then follows that the statement that he won is a false statement. There can't be two truths. It can't be true both that Trump won and that he lost. That makes no sense. But it also makes no sense to me that in America and elsewhere, millions of people are willing to embrace the opposite of what the facts appear to show. To inhabit a world where reality does not correspond to the truth. Like the congressman's claim that the insurrection at Capitol Hill was nothing more than a group of well-behaved tourists. So we like to think that facts lead to beliefs, but in fact, beliefs affect how we approach facts. Political scientist Brian Schaffner. So when people already believe something, showing them a fact doesn't necessarily help because they want to basically look at that fact through the prism of what they already believe. Then they're going to try to find a way to dismiss it. All of this space was full when the president took... Like the, the first day of Donald Trump's presidency when his press secretary, Sean Spicer, addressed the media with this extraordinary claim. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. When Sean Spicer says more people have come to this inauguration than the history of inaugurations, part of me is sort of just rolling my eyes and thinking, well, this is just another ridiculous you know, moment. These attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong. But part of me is also thinking, like, how many people are really, like, buying this right now? If you put a photo of Barack Obama's inauguration next to one of Donald Trump's inauguration, it's obvious that what Sean Spicer told the White House press corps was just not true. 
For Obama, Washington's mall is filled with people. But the photos clearly show far fewer people at Trump's event. Political scientist Brian Schaffner decided to conduct a survey to find out how people would react to those two photographs presented side by side. This was a case where we could show them factual evidence, like photographic evidence, and see if they would still tell us that, you know, something that's not true right before their eyes is true to them. The results of our experiment showed that 15% of American adults basically said that they saw in the picture that had fewer people in it, they said that's the one that had more people in it. Um, and that was the one uh, from Trump's inauguration. Now, in a way, that's kind of quite astounding because it seems so completely obvious that there were far more people president for Obama's inauguration than for Trump's. The pictures seem completely clear. That's philosophy professor Kasim Kassam again. Now, the interesting question there is, did they say that because they believed it? Or did they say it because that's what their side required them to say? Our argument is that probably a lot of these people were purposefully lying to us um, because they're basically engaging in something we call partisan cheerleading. And they're willing to tell us something that they know deep down isn't true in order to make their politician, this, in this case Trump, look good. And then when pressed, of course, then people came up with lines like, well, there are facts and there are alternative facts. That line came from Kellyanne Conway, the former White House counselor, when she was trying to defend Spice's false remarks on the inauguration crowds. You're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. Political language has now completely departed from anything like the truth. They're interested in power and using lies as a weapon to get to power. British journalist Peter Oborn is the author of the book The Assault on Truth, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and the emergence of a new moral barbarism. The politics of a manipulative populism is the best way of describing it. Manipulative populism is not about doing real things, it's about constructing false emotions or built anger, hatred or problems which don't really exist. And this new class of political genius uh, does that and takes us into very dangerous places. Peter Oborn believes those dangerous places are being used as tools by some politicians to manipulate reality. These new realities they try to create uh, always have a dividing line between us and them. Because that is the easiest way of preying on the darkest elements inside the human soul. And we all have dark elements inside us. I think the invention of the notion of alternative realities and the notion that you could defend your group as having alternative facts, when basically those are just patently untrue, they're lies, they're falsehoods, uh, is incredibly corrosive. Jay Van Bavel is a professor of psychology at New York University. Normally, historically, politicians would lie and try to get away with it. They wouldn't lie in such a blatant way that everybody could easily fact check it by looking at a simple photo. 
um, and then go on national TV and defend the lie. It was horrifying to see such blatant lies and then the rationalization and justification of the lies. The fact that this was taken up to the extent that it was and that people then started to talk about, you know, alternative facts and alternative realities and we're now living in a post-truth world and so on, I think that was a, a fair enough description of what was going on. If you think that what was really going on was the politicization of truth. Which means that people are lying because they believe that's what they're meant to do, to please their leaders who they know have also lied. How can anyone judge now what's real or not real? It's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. Stirring to the mix, this comment from President Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. No, it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. Truth is not truth? Wow. The new frontier of politics is challenging reality itself. And I think reality, by which I mean a shared vision of the world and how it works, I think that is now up for grabs. Ethan Zuckerman again, the media scholar. The struggles politically of the next 10 or 20 years are not about the interpretation of facts, they're about what reality we actually live in. And I think right now, no one is actually trying to change anybody's minds about how to interpret reality. We are just at war over what reality itself actually is. I try to get a closer look at just how reality itself is shifting. So I catch up with a man who has first-hand experience of how to manipulate it. I was a counterintelligence specialist. I handled counterintelligence operations for the United States Air Force. His name is Richard Doty, and for years his job involved planting fake stories in the US media about space aliens supposedly visiting Earth. Back in the uh, early 80s, we had a drone program at Kirtland Air Force Base, highly classified back then. So people would see these things flying around Kirtland Air Force Base, and we try to deceive them or fool them to think that what they were seeing was in fact UFOs. We uh, co-opted uh, news organizations, local news media, and we planted stories to them, and they went along with it because they didn't know the truth. How widespread was this operation? Oh, it was very widespread. It went all the way up through the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then from there, it would go up to the director of Central Intelligence. And then from there, it would go to the White House. Do you believe it weakened the public's trust in the government? Well, yes, the public was deceived by the government. And for all these years, the government is still deceiving the public. Doty and I are standing in a vast valley in southern Colorado. It's strewn with offerings left for visiting aliens. 
People have brought gifts, cash, car license plates, clothing, CDs, old phones, letters. Well, I think that's a, um, a great gesture based on the belief most people have that they exist. I pluck an envelope from the branches of a tree. Inside is a handwritten plea from a young girl for aliens to bring back her mother, lost to cancer. Was the writer one of those deceived by Doty? I ask him whether he understands that people may be angry now that they know that what he said about UFOs was a lie. Yeah, sure, yeah. But they don't understand. They don't understand. The people that were saying this have never been in intelligence, never been in the military, never worked with the government, never had a security clearance, but they're immediately turning on me and saying, well, you're providing disinformation. Well, yeah, for a purpose, for an intelligence purpose. I didn't randomly go out there and, and, and become a maverick and, and spread disinformation to everybody I could, could think of. There was a particular purpose, an operation. Uh, we call it counterintelligence operation, you call it disinformation. We have to keep the American secret secret. And that was our job. And I was commended, I got awards for it. I did what I was told to do. My colleagues, every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. Former US Secretary of State Colin Powell was also doing his job when he made this speech to the UN Security Council in 2003. The facts in Iraq's behavior demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Powell's assessment that Iraq was stockpiling weapons of mass destruction was used as a pretext for going to war. A few months later, he said he learned that what he'd told the UN was incorrect. Imagine how I felt the day that uh, they finally came in and said to me, well, you know, we don't have four independent sources for that biological warfare van. It's one guy, and he's loopy, and he's in a German jail, and we've never talked to him. Hello? All of it fell apart over the summer. By August, it was all gone. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson was Colin Powell's chief of staff at the time of that UN speech. He told me he now believes he and Powell participated in a hoax on the American people. Powell would walk through the door and tell me with a disconsolate look on his face, another pillar just collapsed, whether it was the stockpile of chemical and biological weapons or biological weapons labs. There are many reasons that people could be distrustful of the government. You know, in the last 20 years, you could point to these, you know, unique points of crisis, say, right, the Iraq war is a, is a wonderful example of this. Suzanne Schneider specializes in political theory and history at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. But there's something broader here as well. As governments become less genuinely responsive to the needs of their people um, and increasingly serve a set of interests which are not those of the vast majority of the population, then the notion that they are a force of good or that they are telling the truth similarly recedes. Lawrence Wilkerson says he's experienced that feeling after fighting in the Vietnam War and later learning that the government had lied about the reasons for the conflict. How does it make me feel? It makes me feel terrible. It makes me feel like my country has failed me. It makes me feel like my government has failed me. It makes me feel like there is little to be trusted about the US government with regard to the national security state anymore. 
doubt, disillusionment, mistrust. Then COVID arrives. It's that attitude towards the truth that proved to be incredibly deadly once a pandemic hit. Because you can lie about crowd sizes all you want, no one gets hurt. There's no consequence to saying you had a bigger crowd or, than someone else. But the moment you're lying about a deadly disease, probably the deadliest pandemic in 100 years, then people will die as a consequence of that lie. This is a huge question for today's America. How do you function as a democracy if your people or a sizable majority of them don't trust your government? Um, it's a huge question. A lot of political scientists, some of whom I've had conversations with about this, believe you can't. Um, and therefore we're gonna fall apart. We are now getting to the point where the debates are not about how to interpret a single set of facts. They are about marshalling your own independent set of facts and coming to the conclusions that come from them. And it is not clear how a partisan democracy operates in that universe. It's not clear that if we are bifurcated politically and we end up living in a bifurcated reality, that democracy as we know functions. How will democracy function in such a divided world? How can it, when it's so difficult to filter fact from fiction, when society is so deeply divided and where it seems to be in the interests of those in power to keep it that way? Ethan Zuckerman is not convinced that it can. That may well be how democracy dies, is if we have a sufficiently divergent fact pattern that we can't agree on a single reality to try to collectively govern. That's it for this episode of Al Jazeera Investigates. This episode was produced by me, Peter Charlie, and Kevin Hurton. Our audio editor is Craig Pennington. Clean Cuts does the final sound mix. The executive producer is Joe DeFrias, and Phil Reese is Al Jazeera's director of investigative journalism. 